Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Banyan Books Podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee, and I'm really, really excited today to be joined uh, by someone who happens to be a dear friend of mine, uh, Mr. David Roche. David Roche has transformed the challenges and gifts of living with a facial difference into a compelling message that uplifts and delights audiences around the world. The story of his heroic journey from shame to strength has inspired standing ovations from the White House and Kennedy Center to Olympics art festivals, from New Zealand to Moscow, London to Sydney, and across North America. David presents keynote speeches and entertainment for corporate, association, disability, and educational events of all kinds. He's been featured in four films, including Shameless, which is a feature-length documentary from the National Film Board of Canada, and another film called Happy Face, which is a really powerful dramatic film released in 2018. In January of 2022, that's this year, David received the Order of Canada. He was recognized for his pioneering contributions to the field of disability art and for promoting acceptance, inclusion, and diversity across Canada and the United States. Today, David Roche is with Banyan Books in conversation about his book, The Church of 80% Sincerity. This is a hilarious, heartbreaking, moving and inspiring book. And I have to say, David's a personal friend, but reading his book gave me so much more insight into his life and experience. And I'm really excited to talk to him more about that. Anne Lamott, who wrote the foreword for this book, says the following. David lost the great big outward thing, the good looking packaging, and still the real parts endured. They shine through like crazy, the brilliant mind and humor, the depth of generosity, the intense blue eyes. I really have to agree with Anne and I, having known David personally for a long time now, I have my own comments that I'll kind of try and weave in as we go through this evening. If you want to learn more about David and his work, you can visit his website, which is David Roche. Roche is spelled R-O-C-H-E dot com, davidroche.com. So Banyan community, please join me in a very warm welcome for David Roche. Thanks so much for being here, David. 
Thank you, Lars. I wonder if we can start with just letting people, for those people here that, that don't know you, uh, maybe you can fill them in on what you do. What is the Church of 80% Sincerity? How did you come to that? And what is it that, that you do exactly uh, in your work? Wow. You're asking for the story of my life. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, uh, I did not find my creative voice till I was middle-aged, in my 40s. Um, I, what turned me around was, first of all, um, quitting alcohol. And that opened up all my creativity. Then I met Marlena, my wife, and fell in love. So all of a sudden, I'm sober and in love and loved. So that, uh, that set me off. I uh, decided to take a class in the comedy of recovery, recovery in a 12-step sense. And uh, the teacher, Lee Glipstein, who's still doing this, uh, he said, don't tell jokes. Just tell the truth about your life. That's what's funny. Well, I started out, uh, my first gig was at an adult bookstore in San Francisco. And the, uh, the event was called Lay Down Comedy. That's a joke, okay? Um, and for $15, people got a glass of champagne and six comedians. I had never done this before, so I, I stepped out there. I wasn't the lead off, I was somewhere in the middle. And I found myself in an adult bookstore with all the devices festooning the walls. And everybody has had one glass of champagne. So they're all kind of tiddly, but they're not drunk. And they're jammed into this little story about 40 people watching me. And here's the thing. They're all looking at me with dead room eyes. It was like, oh. And, and so that's my first experience on stage. I liked that a lot. And I did well. I got $25. And I thought, that's the way it's always going to be. Well, it's not always that way. I tried being a Canadian. Uh, I made jokes about my face, stupid jokes, like this is a Ben and Jerry's flavor. Can you guess the name? You know, things like that. People did not like that. They liked it when I was just present. So uh, I started doing that. And then I found out that if you call yourself a speaker, a keynote speaker, you get about five times as much as you do as a comedian. So I started doing that. And basically what I do, and this has kind of developed over the years, I'm basically present. I come out on stage and people see me with a marked facial difference. 
and you can tell there's a silence that falls over the audience. There always is at the beginning of the show, but they're in visual mode. They're looking at me, trying to figure out what happened to me. And then I start the show. I say, okay, when I count to three, I want everyone here to say, what happened to your face? And I go one, two, three, and they all do it. And they love it because I am totally giving them what they want. And I explain, and I'm funny, and I'm charming, and that's it. And the, the secret behind that loss is, uh, and it actually took me years to figure this out, is everybody feels disfigured. Everybody feels that there's something wrong with them and that they're ashamed and they're fearful that they'll get found out and uh, they uh, feel guilty and it can be a physical thing, often in our society, uh, especially so women, but even a lot for men now too, and all genders. Um, it's a physical thing, you know, it's something as simple as a wart, uh, a finger that's a little crooked, you know, on and on. Also, the inside, I'm dumb, I'm stupid, I, I, I don't have any sense of humor, whatever kind of thing. And Here's me, I get up on stage, and they relate to me because they feel the same as I do. They feel that there's something wrong with them, and here they see someone with something definitely, quote, wrong with them, being real. Um, that's kind of a long answer to your question, but really that's, that's what I do. All, all I have to do is be present. That's all they want. They just want me to be myself. I love it. It's easy, really. I, I know, you know, the, the trolls say that uh, the number one fear of Canadians and Americans is fear of public speaking, and death is number five. So basically people think, I would rather die than go up on stage. So here I am, and I'm doing it. And I love it. And uh, I, I, I now I do uh, whatever I feel like doing. I, I, don't, I never felt a marketing pressure. It was always word of mouth with me. So that always works well. It's a long answer, Ross, and didn't mean to overwhelm you. No, no, I mean, I was expecting a longer answer because I, I just wanted to give everybody some context as an entry point to this conversation. And yeah, that was that was probably as short as you could you could sum up, you know, a, a huge body of experience and work that you've done over your life. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, you mentioned everybody's everybody's fear of, of you know, getting up in public speaking. And in chapter four of your awesome book, The Church of 80% Sincerity, um, you, it's that chapter is titled "The Basic Motivating Factor," and that motivating factor you tell us is embarrassment. You write, "In the Church of Eighty Percent Sincerity, we understand that the basic motivating factor for all human beings is not self-preservation or sex or love; it is the desire not to be embarrassed." And then you go on to say, "Behind the fear of embarrassment is that deeper fear 
of saying what you really think and feel and telling your story because that is when you may be exposed as stupid, inarticulate, selfish, or anything else that you would rather leave undiscovered. So can you talk about your, your experiences with fear of embarrassment and how you, you know, some of the stories of, and experiences that helped you to face it and move through it? Huh. Um, that's a great question, of course. Um, I grew up, uh, uh, I'm 78. That means I was born in 1944 during the Second World War. And my father, uh, who was a waste runner in a plane, had gotten shot down and at that time was in uh, uh, Stavag 17, the prison of war in Germany. And uh, we didn't know if he would come back. Uh, so I was there with my mother, her two teenage sisters, my grandmother and grandfather and Blackie the dog. It was basically a matriarchy. And I was so loved for the first, say, two and a half years of my life, always loved. And but that was a special time because I was there, a gift of life in a time of war, of fear, of deprivation. Um, so that was a good start for me. And I, I had love in my family. We were not well off. There were seven of us. Okay, yes, Catholic. Here's the seven kids. David, Craig, Kathleen, Patrick, Kevin, Michael, Teresa. I was Catholic, yes. <laughs> um, but that also meant that I had a loving community in the church, in the school, in the neighborhood. So I grew up, you know, there was nothing like a cancel culture or anything like that. There was a neighborhood. And like uh, in school, the nuns taught me, David, you are a child of God. David, you are a soul that's inside you. So. I, I was never teased in my family, and never teased in school, but that never would have been tolerated in the first place. Plus, I, like I say, I've always been funny and had friends, and um, I played sports, which is really helpful for a young male. And, uh, and so I was nurtured uh, until at age 13, I decided that I wanted to be a Catholic priest. This was back in the day when they took you at age 13. Now, obviously we know there's a larger story behind all of that, but I went to the interview at the Holy Cross Seminary at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. And the priest who interviewed me said, we're sorry, you're too ugly to be a priest. Their exact words, as I recall them, were because of your unfortunate appearance that parishioners would not be able to have respect for you. Now, as a good Catholic boy, 
When the priest spoke, that was the word of God. For my 13 years, I had been nurtured and cherished and told I was precious. All of a sudden, I am hearing God telling me that I am a monster. That was the worst thing that ever happened to me. So that set me, that set the fear aflame inside me. Um, and so I always carried that. I, I covered that with alcohol. I functioned. Uh, I did really, I'm really smart. I did well in school and earned money and stuff like that. And I uh, married the first woman I had sex with, which was not Marina. Um, and, uh, and, you know, because that's what you do when you're Catholic. Well, it was not the best marriage. I have a lovely daughter from that marriage. Um, and uh, I functioned. And uh, I, I did some amazing things. I tried to be a hippie, but I failed. I, I think I'd probably say in a book that I was the world's only anal retentive hippie. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, it, it wasn't until in my 40s that uh, when I, you know, I quit drinking in, in, in that marina and then I entered into the world. I did not know that I had a disability, by the way. There was the doyen of disability arts activism in California, Cheryl Marie Wade, uh, after I had started out trying to be a Canadian uh, she called me, and I had heard of her, and, and basically, she said, do you know you have a disability? And I'm like, uh, but I, I don't, I, and she said, if people see you as having a disability, you're disabled. That's called the social model of disability. I said, oh, really? Okay. Um, and so I went to a meeting of artists and creators with disability, and I fell in with that crowd. Um, and I, I cast my fate with them, and have never, never regretted it. It's a wonderful world. You know, I, as I've gotten to know you more, um, and I just want to tell everyone, David, his public persona and who he actually is, are pretty in integrity. Like there's not much difference in my experience because he is all about authenticity, vulnerability, and, and speaking his truth. But as I've gotten to know you, David, um, I've gotten to see just how many people you're a mentor and a support to, myself included, and mm. how many people you inspire day to day outside of your public uh, image and, and, the, and the work you do on stage. Um, I, I actually watched last night your, the film that you're in, Happy Face. And uh, I wanted to ask you about that because, you know, it's got a whole cast of people with facial differences. And the whole focus is, you know, dealing with that in life and finding one's inner strength and beauty. Can you tell us a little bit about how, how you came to, to be a part of that film and, and what it was like to, to shoot a film like that? Oh, boy, that was one of the best experiences of my life. Um, 
Uh, I was recruited uh, into the film. I was the first actor recruited about a year and a half before the actual shoot. And uh, I did an audition and it turned out fine. Uh, you know, if you're looking for actors with facial differences, you know, you're going to come to me pretty soon. Um, and so that's what he did. And uh, the film was basically uh, a, uh, a, his, the, the director, Alexandre Franchi, uh, it was his story of having a mother who had facial cancer and was dealing with facial difference. And he, as a teenager, having a bad attitude toward it and having to deal with it and figure it out. And so it was a personal story, and uh, then it, it was laid out uh, in a, a support group for people with facial difference, and I was one of them. And uh, it was shot in uh, Montreal, uh, I think it was the, either the month, it must have been the month of September, and uh, I was all nervous. I thought, like, what a stupid mistake I was to sign on with this. And then we'll go to Montreal and people will hate me because I don't speak French. And uh, they're taking advantage of me and on and on. But as soon as I got on set, as soon as the shoot started, uh, it was great. Alexandra, uh, he really respected who we are, who we were. And um, it, uh, it was a, a wonderful experience. And plus, I got to be in Montreal, which is, I, I just wish that Montreal was in British Columbia. That would make me happy. I loved it there. It's interesting. The film is uh, brilliant. It's, it also has, uh, and anybody who's into film will see, well, this is flawed and that's flawed. Um, but uh, it, it's an, an, an incredible uh, story, but it was interesting. The Toronto International Film Festival and Vancouver International Film Festival both rejected it. Are you serious? Because it uh, featured people with facial licenses. They could not deal with that. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. But you know, when it got to be popular, there's a whole genre of horror films, horror film festivals. And, and this is not a horror film, as you well know, no. but it does have people with facial differences. And so the horror film festivals took it on. And then, of course, it gets best film of festival because it's fantastic. And it's not really a horror film. Uh, and and so it's got legs. And uh, it's, you know, I think it's time really is yet to come. Um, it was a film before it's time. Um, so I urge people to see it. Uh, it's on, I think, uh, YouTube in Canada. I, I forget the other platform. I found it on iTunes. I rented it. Actually, I bought it on iTunes, but you can rent it on iTunes too. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah and I, I, I have to agree. Like, I didn't know what to expect. And I was absolutely blown away. 
it was it, it was an incredible film and I'm shocked that it would have been rejected by those film festivals. It's great sex scenes. Yeah. Oh man are they raw. Yeah. Really raw and and uh uh, one of the characters is very a very heavy set woman, uh, and very powerful, incredible actor, and uh, and and it shows her. Uh, at, at one point, uh, the guy that she has a crush on, um, yeah, yeah, she thinks he has uh, betrayed her, and he's coming up and being nice to her, and she just like slaps him, knocks him to the floor. And then, uh, then jumps on top of and they end up in this violent uh, beginning, having really heavy uh, sexual encounter, which is really beautiful to see. Um, so yeah, so come and see it to the sex alone. <laughs> I, I, David, you know, one of the themes in your work and that you talk about all the time in our personal encounters and that that movie brings to light so much is it, it totally shakes up um, our, you totally shake up my ideas about beauty and what it really is. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about your perspective on beauty? So, so the disfigured guy is the expert on beauty. Okay. Absolutely. I'll do that. I'll do that. Yeah. Uh, here's a story that I think of when you ask that. Uh, people tend to confess to me. Uh, actually, it turns out I am a kind of a priest, uh, even though I was rejected long ago. Um, and one of the things that it's reasonably often is mentioned is that by the way I had plastic surgery and you can tell you can kind of see the scar on the side of my nose here um, and, uh, and it's always kind of told in confidence um, and uh, it bothered me bothered me for a while and so well, how I came to grips with it is that I feel that, uh, you know, if you get cosmetic surgery and you are changed inside of how you look at yourself, then God bless you. You know, then that's doing you good. I think that's the key thing. Um, I don't know. I, I do, I do, I do feel it's interesting, since I started performing, um, things have changed so much. This is a third of the century where uh, diversity and inclusivity is sort of like uh, a good thing now. Uh, so that someone who looks like me, I would generally, I, well, People have their reactions, which is totally understandable. But uh, I generally expect to be accepted. And maybe part of that is the way I am, that I act like I'm going to be accepted. Um, but that's 
also then a change in society. Along with that change um, has come a cultural change. Uh, more and more of us who have facial differences are not only surviving, we are thriving. And the kind of thing that I talk about that uh, I, I know that I am attractive, uh, other people know that too who have facial differences. And now, now there's actually a global community. Thousands of people who have facial difference. Now, social media is the, uh, the platform, the agency that brings, can bring people together in a situation like this. More and more, those of us who have facial differences are realizing that we understand a lot more about the human condition than you cute people do. Okay. And I shouldn't call you cute. I'll call you. <laughs> How about able-faced? You're able-faced. <laughs> um, you know, because we've been through that, uh, the, the thing of having to find, uh, to believe in ourselves and to find our own duty and to believe in it. And once you learn that, you know, you're unstoppable, really. It's great. And we know how to do that. So you need to come to us to find out. You need to read the Church of Ages to send sincerity. That's what you need to do. That's what you need to do. Honestly, this book, even having known you, David, for a while now, reading this book changed me. And I'm still digesting it. Like one of the stories you tell in there, there I mean, it's just filled with amazing stories. Thank you. Um, one of the one of the stories that I, I was incredibly moved by was a shocking event that happened to you but the thing that was so poignant about it was your response to it as you're coming up the escalator one day in Chicago and this man approaches you and confronts you can you tell us that story I get to the top I'm coming up the escalator out of the subway station and as I come to the top of the escalator I see someone standing there facing downwards at the top of an up escalator, which is puzzling, and I got to it, the top, and there was uh, a young man, slim, attractive physically, you know, dressed in coat and tie. He spits in my face, and he says, you're the ugliest thing I've ever seen. And he just walks away. I... Uh, I had it together enough with what spit dripping down my face to turn and say, and you're ugly in your heart. So that felt good, but still that experience stuck with me and until I, I had to go to work. And then uh, came back from work and my friend, Art Novo was visiting from Milwaukee and uh, he sat me down and he said, David, you know, you might not want to hear this, but that man was talking to himself when he said that. And 
that's the kind of thing you could hear a hundred times in your life. So it was just like, just like an art. It was a friend of mine since we were 13. And uh, what he said hit me and I took it in. So that was a horrible time and a helpful time. <laughs> and, it, it, and it shifted something for you, you, you say in the book, it moved you in a new direction of, of sort of speaking up, uh, speaking up for yourself and not holding back your voice. Is that true? Yes, that, that was one of the things that uh, encouraged me in my performing and speaking career. Yeah, definitely. You know, David, I, I encourage uh, everybody to get, get someone to stick in your face and say you're the ugliest thing that I've ever seen. It's magic. It's like a miracle. <laughs> no, I could probably be some kind of internet guru doing something like that. Uh, no, not in, not in the era of the pandemic, no. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> if not for the pandemic, it would be gold, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, David, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you recall how you and I met. I think we met probably at, at Hazel, our friend, the artist, Hazel Belkowski's house at a potluck dinner or something like that. I think um, so. Yeah, and, you know, when we first met, I had no idea you know, who you are, what you did for a living. I just, I noticed right away, you know, the, the care that you, the, that you had for the people around you and the respect that you showed everyone and, and that they had in turn for you. And then not shortly after, I um, was lucky enough to go and to Creative in the Creek. And for everybody who doesn't know, that's on the Sunshine Coast where we live a little uh, a cafe called The Gumboot where David founded a, a get-together called Creative in the Creek where different artists from the Sunshine Coast would come and showcase their art and performance. And I saw David get up and, um, and, and do some stand-up. Now, when we all arrived, David, David uh, had us all, everybody write on a little piece of paper and, he's, and we were given the instructions, write down your questions for God. And we wrote down on a little piece of paper and then all our questions went into a hat and, you know, the performers were getting up and taking their turns for 10 or 15 minutes or whatever. Finally, David gets up and it's his turn and he walks up there with the hat and he does this whole routine as speaking as God. And then he's taking these questions out of the hat and answering them spontaneously. And I was blown away at, at here's a guy who's found his, his voice uh, as a comedian and the spontaneity uh, and truth that you spoke was incredible. So I'm just wondering if, you know, can you, can you share some stories about how you found your voice? I know there's the one about in the, in the Baptist church, I think it was in, I don't know if it was in San Francisco where you're to go up and speak on behalf of the, the communist group uh, that you're a part of. Uh, that one comes to mind. It's such a beautiful story. Well, uh, I'd love to tell that, because that was a real turning point in my life. Um, I was, uh, and, and after that, we were doing a Get Out the Vote campaign in San Francisco. And uh, uh, we're uh, active uh, throughout San Francisco, uh, the very diverse community. And on this particular day, 
I uh, had been chosen to be a speaker. Uh, we were invited at the Third uh, Street Baptist Church by Reverend Pinard to come and talk about getting out the vote. And I sat there, and this was a storefront church, and I was sitting next to Cynthia Robbins, who is uh, my comrade, uh, who is uh, a black woman, and I was the only uh, white person in this building. And I grew up Catholic, where if you made any noise in church, you get, your mom would slap you or pull your ear or something like that. But here, they weren't just whispering, they were like yelling. You know, say like, uh, Rhonda, come on over here. I want you to meet my son, Kenny. He's in from Alameda. <laughs> and, uh, and, and just connecting, and there's a band playing, you know, a small band, you know, with uh, with two guitars and drums, and uh, and and they're laying down a pretty heavy beat that and that people are like just kind of moving to. It's a whole different scene, and I'm like, hi, 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 what? Um, Reverend Kennard calls me up to the pulpit after a very nice introduction, I realized as he's introducing me, he's not just introducing me. He is warming up the crowd. He is opening for me. And I'm just thinking like, oh my God, this is amazing. Then as I'm starting up toward the, the, the pulpit, I'm walking so that the west side of my face is facing the crowd and I remember something that happened years previously a group of uh, black girls middle school students were standing outside the school and I was walking by and as I walked by they stopped and fell silent and stared at me and one of them said ew he gross and that, ew, he gross, stuck with me and became like a, a, a bad news mantra that I think of at three o'clock in the morning. I'd wake up and I'd think, ew, he gross. And it was coming back to me as I headed up to the pulpit. Um, but doesn't come out reading me warmly and I uh, walked up there and I looked out and uh, about a third of the audience just stood up and then and they were just going to say, praise Jesus, yeah. tell the truth, tell it like it is. He said, thank you, Jesus. And, and, and uh, they, they were not just, in my experience, welcoming me. They were and this is a Catholic boy speaking, calling upon the Holy Spirit to come and inspire me. And right in that instant, right in that instant, my God changed from a cranky old white guy with anger management problems, 
up in the sky with a club behind his back to uh, a goddess, a female divinity that there was not going like this, but was holding me up from below. And I saw it, I saw it and I felt it and changed, changed my life, it really did. So I'm grateful. Thank you, Reverend Kennard. And thank you for reminding me of that story, Ross. That was certainly important in my finding my voice. I, I also did other things as uh, a communist, a Marxist-Leninist, if you will. Kind of the last one in the world, actually. I uh, uh, stuck on a bus. Um, I had gotten in, uh, we were organizing the same thing, getting out the vote. Okay, I'll confess this story. Uh, uh, we were giving an assignment to each stove to steep on a San Francisco city bus. Um, and it was inspired by something that I had done, engaging in a conversation on the bus. And for two weeks, I was so afraid. Uh, and I get out and I think I'm going to do it, but I couldn't. And one day, somehow, I put my money in. I grabbed the railing and I looked out at these people. And this was like a San Francisco morning crowd. It was like uh, some students were late to Mission High School. There were uh, 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 older people with their heavy coats on because it was a foggy day. There were like janitors heading home uh, from their shift and just the people that we wanted to reach. So I uh, started speaking and uh, it was a shock because uh, everybody looked up with this kind of like shocked look. First of all, that someone would be trying to give a speech on a bus at 8 o'clock in the morning. Secondly, that this person was facially disfigured. And third, of course, that I was a communist. And, uh, yeah, although I didn't say, I'm a communist. I didn't say that. But you could kind of guess. Um, and then this well-dressed guy sitting up front, white guy, coat and tie on, briefcase on his lap. Um, he picks up his briefcase and he swings it at me. And he says, get off the bus, you fucking deformed communist faggot. You know, it's like, well, three insults in one. That's why I tries. I, um, and, and somehow I felt Speaking, I don't know how. I don't know where that courage came from. I cannot. If I could explain it to you, I, I promise you I would. But I did. And then I finished and I made my way to the back of the bus. I didn't know what I had done. I sat down and I just hang in my head. And then all of a sudden I see in front of me a woman, an old woman grabs my hand and I see her hand, it's like that little spots and wrinkles and stuff like that and it's trembling and she looks at me and she says, son, you did a grand job, you did a grand job. 
And she turns around and says, and you're the one who said you didn't have to dust your damn bully. And, and uh, then from behind another hand, a larger, darker hand on my shoulder, and I turn and it's two Latino guys. Uh, they look like gang members, Zatos, we would call them. Pendleton shirts buttoned up and, uh, uh, you know, princess around the head. Uh, and I thought, uh-oh, I'm in trouble now. The woman said, hey, uh, homie, <laughs> you know what? What? She you did a good job, man, but you got to get up there and do it again. And he reached behind me and he grabbed my belt and he lifted me out of the seat and told me into the aisle and shoved me toward the front of the bus. And I did it again, somehow. So, you know what? It's not me finding my voice. It's my voice being encouraged by other people. That's it. It's not just one person. It's community. And, and people, yeah, that's how I survive and thrive. That's really those two stories are like, in some ways, the story of my life. You know, why did I do that? I don't know. I did it, but it turned out good. So I don't know how to answer it more than that. Good stories. Yeah. Thank you, David. And someone else that really supports you is your wife, Marlena. And um, there, there's so many, like, I'm, you know, David and I get together and work on our poetry and writing with another friend, Chloe, every Monday. And uh, David is a beautiful writer. And I was reminded of that even more reading this book. It's hilarious. It's, it's moving and it's poetic. Now, listen to this. This is an example. He's talking about meeting his wife, Marlena, he says, Marlena seduced me. She seduced me quietly, not only by nurturing touch, but also by her persistence, by seeing who I was, by valuing me, by taking that second and third and fourth long look. I had experienced the language of love. Touch had bypassed my consciousness and worked on the deepest cellular level. My soul had waited years for this time. Can you just tell us a little bit about your meeting with Marlena and, and you know, how, how your, your relationship has blossomed and developed over the years? I will say that was very beautifully written and very beautifully read, Ross. Thank you. I'm proud that I wrote that. I've captured it all. Um, I was having a spiritual crisis. I weighed 115 pounds. I'm a little guy, not that little. I was still drinking. I was smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. I was living on chocolate donuts and Doritos and coffee. Um, and, uh, but I, I uh, started getting massage and I began the process of getting into my body uh, and that's a good place to be especially for me more and more uh, I'm, I came into my true 
sensory sensual digging. I started massage school and I uh, started, uh, I took this one weekend course. Marina happened to be there for the second uh, day of it. Um, and in, in, the, in that course, I met somebody who said, we're starting a program at Pacific Presbyterian Hospital in San Francisco, a massage program. It turns out they had a special unit called the Plain Tree Unit, where they had art in the patient's rooms, they made cookies, and they wanted to give massages. So we started doing that. Um, and we had to, you know, practice a lot to learn the protocols, the contraindications, and hospital massage is very loving and very tender. You have to be very aware of incision sites, bandages, all kinds of things. Um, but the, the touch is so treasured by people in the hospital. Uh, boy. Okay, another story. Um, the first time I was on the unit doing this, uh, the nurses at first did not really trust us because we were sort of like famous hippies. Um, so I, I, I show up, I had my towels on my shoulder, I had my uh, non-allergenic, hypoallergenic massage lotion with me. And uh, the head nurse, the charge nurse says, go into room 115, Mr. Jenkins. He's been rather agitated. And I thought, oh, great. Um, so I go in, there's Mr. Jenkins. Hi, Mr. Jenkins. My name is David. I'm a volunteer. Would you like a massage? Mr. Jenkins is sitting in one of those orange naugahyde chairs that the patients have in their room and he's got a robe on and he's an older guy uh very thin almost emaciated and he and he said and and uh he says i sure would young man and he opens his robe and i see this dark red rash on the inside of his thighs and uh and uh, he reaches over and gets the user and off the windowsill and hands it to me. And here's, I'm looking the Catholic stuff into a lot of stories here, but I realize my thought was that just popped into my mind is if St. Francis can kiss a letter, I can do this. I worked in the inside of his thighs. There was nothing sexual. He just needed some relief. I don't know what it was. Uh, and thank you. And he closed his robe and done. And I leave. And the charge nurse looks at me like, yeah, how was that? And I didn't say anything. I just wrote in the chart, patient appreciated massage. So that was my introduction, but then what the other thing, the main thrust of this story is Marlena touching me, and she's touching my face, and she's touching my face when nobody has touched before. 
And this like, is when you were you're exchanging massages with her in the Yeah, we're practicing. Yeah, we're practicing. I'm doing the patient and she's touching my face. And <clears throat> it's so loving that I just knelt. Um and uh so it, it kind of took off from there. And uh and and Marina was married to someone else, and I was falling in love. We were falling in love. Like I say, she did seduce me, um, but uh, I was quite willing to be seduced. And uh, then, uh, then we became mothers, and then her marriage ended, and then we got married, etc., etc. But that touch, that magic touch, uh, really helped. And you know, it's interesting now. What, uh, 33 years later, Marlena is teaching compassionate touch to hospice volunteers here on the Sunshine Coast of British Columbia. She's still doing it, and it's, uh, it's great. So that, that's how that started. You've got the magic touch. Woo! Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you and Marlena uh, have a project called Love at Second Sight, which is a big part of what you do. Can you tell people a little bit about that? Yeah, first of all, you can see it, loveatsecondsight.org. It's free. It's no charge. It's uh, Marlena and I, and sometimes just me, um, have done uh, a program. We're going to, particularly in middle schools, like, the target audience is kids who are like right on that uh, fine line between childhood and puberty. You know, on any given day, is uh, shall I be a child or shall I be an adolescent? You know, um, and they're right at the age when they're, they're starting to judge themselves. So uh, we go in and tell, just tell the story. It's like a 20-minute program, and here's what kids like. They like funny. They like physical, you know, like moving and dancing, and they like authentic. And they don't like to be told what to do. Stories, fine. They get it. They get it. But uh, you, don't, you don't tell them what to do. Marina was the go-getter, the executive producer, and she made a... Uh, uh, a music video that goes along with it too, and you can see them both on YouTube. Love at SecondSight.org. And the best thing in the film is how the kids' expressions change. At first they're like, what? Who's this? And then they're like, oh, he's funny. And then they're, then they're totally engaged. And you can see how someone changes. It's beautiful. Oh, yeah. So I'm, yeah. And, and so, okay, uh, I'm just going to take a moment here. There she is. <laughs> Hi, Marlena. Hi, great interview. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for being here. Yeah, it's wonderful. That's Marlena, everybody. <laughs> wonderful woman. Yeah. Um, we have one question here from Joy Mincy Powell, who says, uh, this is Joy Mincy Powell here. I think you look great. I love your gray hair. Do you think that aging has affected your performance work? 
Wow, Joy. Uh, boy, that goes back a long way. It's just so nice to hear from you, Joy. I, um, I think it has affected my work. Um, and, and just the ta and just the passage of time uh, and learning things like uh, I remember I had been doing my solo show for like three years and I did it at uh, a church and as I was leaving I was telling my friend Austin who I was giving a ride to you know, it always, you know, it just can't get going for the first five, ten minutes. And Austin said, well, David, you know why. It's just because they got to get used to you, that's all. So, and, and why am I telling this story? I don't know. <laughs> oh, this is aging. <laughs> Yeah. There's your answer, Joy Mincy Call. Yeah. <laughs> Who cares? You know, it's just presence anyway. So, you know, over the years you learn stuff about an audience. And now I don't prepare anything for a, a, a talk or a show. Uh, I just go out there with an open heart. And whatever happens, I know it's going to be good. Because if I go out there expecting to love and be loved, um, then it's going to be good. So I, I think that that is something that, that certainly, uh, if it didn't come along with aging joy, it certainly was enhanced by aging. And um, thank you for the compliment about my hair. That's... That's something I feel very disfigured about with my hair. <laughs> so, compliments. So I get a haircut. Oh, I have to tell Chloe, who cuts hair, that I got a compliment. From That's her. right. She cuts both David and I's hair. Our friend Chloe, who we meet every Monday to write poetry with, she also cuts our hair at her head salon, Silk Head Spa. Enjoy. Uh, I, I believe it's uh, was a calling in from Los Angeles, so that's a, a compliment from about 2,500 miles away. So thank you. Very thank nice. You. David, uh, we're, we're coming close to our time here. There's a, a nice comment from um, uh, Marie. It's either Marie or Mary. Apologies, Marie or Mary, if I'm saying it the wrong way. Uh, she just comments, the world needs more beautiful people like David and his wife. And then she says, thank you, Ross. That's wonderful. Thanks for your comment, Mary. Well, I agree. I agree. I, you know, I'll uh, throw in uh, Ross Nikichi in there too. <laughs> and uh, Camp Digi, lots of beauty there. Thank you. Oh, thanks, David. Yeah, you know, and I, I hear these kind of compliments. And it feels spot on, yeah. And yeah, I know I'm beautiful. I know that. Thank you. I'm glad you see it. And that's how I I, I connect with other people too, Ross. You're talking about mentoring. If you see that other people, everyone has that fear of being disfigured, then uh, you it's easier to relate to other people. 
you know, that yeah, it's like holding a baby, really. Uh, you know, and, well, I don't know where that metaphor came from, but <laughs> I'm I'm to, uh, yeah. David, maybe the highest compliment, you, you received the Order of Canada this year. Can you just comment a little bit on what that was like to receive such a high honor? Well, for those who aren't familiar with it, it's uh, basically kind of like the United, only it's kind of low rent. Uh, no, I shouldn't talk like that. It's a great honor for people who have made Canada and, and in my case, the U.S. a better place. Um, I, uh, it was incredible because I got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acknowledgements. I'd been on the Canadian Broadcasting Company uh, uh, current show and uh, articles in various publications and online and that. Um, so uh, people from years and years ago uh, would uh, call, uh, uh, email, or text, uh, or post on Facebook, uh, basically tell me I was wonderful and that I'd changed their lives and heard all these wonderful things. So I felt, you know, my basic feeling is Catholic David again, I'm a good boy. You know, and I thought, yep, I'm a good boy. At last I know it. And uh, um, I felt validated for what my life had been, which is a wonderful feeling. But it's interesting, there was something that, uh, an edge to all that, uh, because I heard all these wonderful things, but then there's this whole other thing, I told some of the stories about being told by two ugly to be a priest or that you're the ugliest thing I've ever seen and so on. Incidents like that. But uh, the, the uh, so it was so overtimingly good, you know, there wasn't an acknowledgement of what I had been through to get there. Uh, and so I felt kind of fraudulent, like, I'm Mr. Charming Funny Nice. Uh, and, uh, you know, well, Mr. Marino was going to talk to you, we'll talk about my shadow side too, and my fear and my doubt, and stuff like that. Uh, so that's there. And it, it was funny to, not have that spoken to. So it took me a couple of months to realize that's why it made me a little uncomfortable to get all these compliments. But maybe that's because inside myself I'm I feel this figure. I don't know. Who knows? Uh, anyhow, it's been a good life. And uh and uh, I, you know, I really appreciate doing this with you, Ross, and uh, your kind words. And, uh, yeah, it's been it's been really uh, wonderful and special to have you here, David. And um, thank you so much for being here. I just want to take a moment to thank our our Banyan community and the live audience too. 
Thank you so much, everyone, for participating. Having people here live, it just brings a whole another energy to this, this connected field that we share. And of course, a big thanks to, to Jacob Steele, our podcast producer and, and events curator. We've been speaking to David Roche about his life and his work and his book, The Church of 80% Sincerity. And uh, David, any, any final thoughts, any parting words for us? Uh, yeah. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Oh, out with the bang. Thank you so much, David Roche. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Jacob. Thank you all for listening and watching, and thank you very much, Ross. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com. <laughs>